From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that uncovers the lives and stories behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. The work that I've been doing has always been work of amplification. My job is to fade into the background so that activists take the space that I've been fighting to hold. What do you do when you decide at the age of seven that the world is an unfair place and you need to try and change it? Raj Patel's career has been dedicated to ending inequality. From studying philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford, LSE and Cornell, to learning about the inner workings of the World Trade Organisation and the World Bank as an intern, Raj was always going to be an activist. His writing about capitalism and contemporary politics is globally influential, and he continues to look for ways to change the political and economic systems that we live in. Raj Patel, welcome to It's a Long Story at the Sydney Opera House. Thank you, Edwina. You were born into a family that owned a corner shop in Golders Green in North London. What sort of community was that that you grew up in? Um, it was a community of, I mean, my, my earliest memories are of, of my family, of uh, my extended family. My father um, was able to make a real go of the, 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 the corner shop um, and then brought over brother by brother from India um, and a, a sister as well. And so I, I remember you know, some of my earliest memories are about um, having these big family gatherings with uh, my, my, my dad's extended family. So what were your parents like? Your father was a, was a storekeeper. What, 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 kind of, um, what kind of person was he? Um, the, I mean, the, they're both whip smart. They're the, the, the really very, very intelligent uh, uh, and inquisitive. And they've, you know, when I was growing up, um, like my dad, you know, I have this thing where I, I need something on all the time. I, you know, I just want information. I, I, and so he always had the radio on and the TV on and a bunch of other things. And he was always reading and listening. And neither of them went um, terribly far. I mean, my, my dad didn't make it into secondary school. My mum made it uh, just out of secondary school. Uh, but both of them are incredibly intelligent, really have an insatiable appetite to learn about the world. Um, and they, they still do. You know, uh, right now, wherever, you know, whatever time it is, there's definitely a telly and a radio on in our house. Why was it that they weren't able to pursue formal education? Well, uh, poverty and, um, and also just, uh, you know, a, a broken family on my mother's side. And so it was, you know, it was just very hard for them to, um, to, to, make it into um, secondary school or, or beyond. Did them growing up in poverty influence the way that they raised their own oh, children? Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, the, for, for, for them, uh, they were deeply uh, sad that they weren't able to use and you know and learn from the university uh and so for us we were you know my, my brother and i were uh, uh tutored and um given absolutely as much encouragement as we could to to do well at school you've written that um and i'm quoting you here Firstborn sons of British Asian families aren't so much raised as fated, and as a child I became quite comfortable being a little prince. Mm. When you wrote that, what were you remembering? I mean, I, I guess it was just the, uh, the the sort of unearned privilege. Uh, I mean, of of patriarchy. I mean, it was uh, what I was remembering was being able to, you know, uh, to be pushed to the front of a queue when there's, you know, food to be shared at a wedding or something like that. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's him. Um, and so, and whereas my brother never got that. And I, you know, when I remember um, my relationship with him, he, he really 
didn't, it, it was entirely unfair. Although pangs of that may have occurred to me at the time, it's only in reflection now that I, I think about the, the desperate injustice of that, and let, let alone you know, how I sat in, in the community of my, my other cousins. Does your brother carry any resentments around that? Um, he, he would be uh, foolish not to, um, but, uh, you know, for, for as much uh, emphasis that was given to the, the building of our, um, uh, you know, academic um, abilities, our emotional um, conversational abilities still remain fairly undeveloped. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that that's culturally British or? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the perfect storm of, of British reticence and, uh, you know, sort of uh, Hindu inability to talk about anything emotional. <laughs> <laughs> You've described yourself as an atheist Hindu. There's a, a book that some friends from college gave me uh, called Am I a Hindu? And the answer is yes. It doesn't matter who you are reading the book. The answer is you're probably a Hindu uh, because it's such an ill-specified religion that um, either you're born into it or you are and you just don't know it yet. It's common to talk about someone being culturally Jewish. Um, I think it's uh, it's fair enough to say that I'm culturally Hindu. And um, though I, I also find it an abhorrent religion and the more I you know, read about it, the more I think it's uh, desperately troubling, uh, everything from the, it, the caste-based violence that, that accompanies it to the fact that you never hear anyone talk to, you, know, you, you hear about liberation theology, liberation Christianity. There's no such thing as liberation Hinduism mm. um, because that would run counter to some of the very basic tenets of um, how the religion is currently structured. Uh, and so it, you know, if you want liberation Hinduism, you have to look to organization and, and, and religions like Sikhism, for example, which mm. has very much a sort of social justice mission. Um, but within Hinduism, there's not much that resonates with anything that I, I see myself as being in the world. Well, there isn't a huge um, impetus within the Hindu sort of framework for revolution when you're sort of waiting for the next life to be right. rewarded. Right. I mean, the, the, the Dharma does is precisely about finding what it is that your purpose is, and it turns out that your purpose is what other people tell you it is, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, and has everything to do with where you're born and how it is that you fit within uh, a fairly well ordained hierarchy. Um, and as someone who doesn't like hierarchy very much, uh, that 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 stinks. Mm. You've spoken a lot about an event in your childhood on a family trip to India mm. where you were in a car and a, a girl who was begging, a little girl who was begging, was knocking at the window. And in that moment, you became aware for the first time, really, that there was this sort of injustice, that, that you and your brother in the car were lucky children who weren't hungry mm. and this girl outside for completely random and incomprehensible reasons yeah. was far, far less fortunate was that a moment of revelation? You've spoken about it a lot. Mm. I've been reading a lot about how it is that activists have conversion experiences. I mean, how, or how anyone has a conversion experience. The, the French philosopher Alain Badiou has this very interesting relationship with, with the figure of St. Paul, for example. I mean, how is it that you can have this moment where it's like, oh, my God, no, I see the light. What's that, you know, what's that like and how is it that you can share that? Um, but for me... From the inside, it didn't feel like you know the, the clouds parted and a ray of light shone down by any means. Um, what it felt like was, oh, I, I, this is not okay, and it's continuing not to be okay, and it stuck with me. And insofar as something sticks with you, that it seems to me is what it's like to have uh, a, an experience of conversion. Um, it's it's not that all of a sudden you're lifted. Um, it's just that you can't get rid of something. Something sits in your mind and you just it doesn't go. Uh, and so for me, the, the experience of that 
translated into, well, all right, we, we came back from India and then a few days later school started. And so I was renting out my toys at kindergarten. Um, and, you know, we, we got 50p or a pound or something and we managed to send that off to famine relief. Uh, and it was that experience of like, oh, yeah, well, this is okay. Um, you know, it, this is a start to making change. And, you know, you watch the news and see whether famine stops. It t- turns out that, that 50 beta famine relief doesn't um, do a whole lot. Though, of course, that's not to say you shouldn't do it. It's just, for, for me, it was the, 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 the experience of the sensation we all have of that's not fair and it just doesn't go away mm. and then you know the rest of you know the rest of my life is figuring out what to do with that yeah i mean but you know as it's not just that's not fair it's that's not fair and i might be able to do something about it that's not fair and i can't not do something about it because it's not it's not something that's going away mm. um so you know in, in a sense it is that's that's it's not a burden it's just um, you, you know, if, if we had to use sort of cliche terms, it'd be like a meme or sort of a mind worm or something. It's just, it's, it's just doesn't get out of your head. So can you trace a direct line from, you know, that kind of childhood moment recognition of injustice through to the way that your career evolved, your decision to study economics? I mean, I was looking from that time onwards to see, well, all right, what's stopping, what's making this fairness or this unfairness go away? And whether that was, you know, raising money for charity or volunteering or when my academic abilities kind of blossomed when I was 11, um, then all of a sudden it was, I was able to sort of match the the inclination with the ability. Uh, and I, I wanted to see what worked. And so I was interested in the, the social milieu in Britain at the time, which was about Thatcherism. I was interested in how it is that people were pushing back against what seemed to be palpably unfair about Thatcherism. And that meant, you know, going on street protests on everything from um, the the campaign for nuclear disarmament. CND was a very big part of uh, what it was to, to resist the, the, the creep of militarism and uh, and injustice and Britain's participation in it to uh, groups that were exploring socialism. Um, and so and, and were particularly fighting fascists. Th- those social experiments had their corollaries in other things that I was looking at. Um, and I, I was like, oh, great. So the, 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 the discipline that seems to encompass all of this is economic. And, uh, and in the end, I, I was admitted to Oxford to study philosophy, politics and economics. And before I got there, I changed my mind. And I said, well, actually, bigger than all of these things is mathematics. Uh, and so uh, and since I was good enough to be able to talk my way into the mathematics um, program there, I, I did that instead. Um, and then realized, A, I wasn't as good as I thought I was. But B, it wasn't. I was developing not just an intellectual tool, uh, toolkit, but also a theory of change. How, how is it that the world actually changes? Um, and increasingly, it seemed to me that the way the world changed was not through um, experts producing equations so much as people fighting in the streets. Um, and that's why I, you know, I shifted back to, to doing PPE, uh, PPE uh, and, and particularly around philosophy, because it wasn't just about fighting in the streets, but I, I was still looking for that big systemic change. Mm. Um, and so I ended up studying a lot of Spinoza, which is something I'm coming back to now, um, because it seems that there are some very deep connections between uh, humans and the rest of the web of life that Spinoza was kind of first on the scene to be able to theorize in some interesting ways. Um, and I'm, I'm excited to be able to, to you know, come full circle, as it were, from uh, this mathematical understanding through Spinoza back to where, where I am now. Mm. So let's get back to teenage activist mm. Raj. Um, as you were finding your sort of 
political compass, if you like, mm. and, and, and navigating all of that. Were your parents supportive of this emerging radical? What, what were their politics? My parents are conservative. Um, and nonetheless, they were excited that I was thinking for myself. And they understood the sort of charitable impulse because good conservatives do. Um, they, they understand how charity works. And where I was heading was understanding that um, crumbs from the table are not going to cut it. Uh, and the way that they passed what I was doing was to see it as charity and the way that I understood it was as social change. Mm. Um, but even now, I mean, we, we, we disagree violently on, on politics, particularly around Hinduism. Um, but they appreciate that uh, you know, where I'm coming from is is uh, a, a place that looks at systemic change and probably, you know, that they in, in their um, quieter moments might admit that systemic change is probably what's necessary. And presumably, too, as a teenager, it really honed your arguing skills if you were required yeah, to defend your position. It, it certainly did. Uh, but more, I, I think it was it was about, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's that the hormonal cocktail of, of youthful rebellion and, uh, and you know, and sort of uh, finding out that the, actually t- taking the, these uh, unpopular positions with one parents, one's parents um, wins wins the affections of, um, you know, them over there at the girls' school. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, it's, there was nothing pure about those, <laughs> about this intellectual journey at all. But nonetheless, it was, uh, it, 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 I mean, it, it, it helped to be able to have them both to push against, but also to, to recognise that no matter what I thought, they would they, they would still love me. Um, and that's that, that's that's you know, I'm imagining I'm I'm going to be have have that wrought on me by my family as well when you know my kids become stockbrokers or something. <laughs> so um, you've described yourself as a as as having anarchist sympathies. Mm. Um, I'd like to talk more about that in a bit, but um, but as a student, you worked for the WTO and the World Bank. Now, presumably, your anarchist side was developing at this point. What made you want to work within those organisations? Where were your politics around that? I uh, well, so, so the the World Trade Organisation was easy. I mean, I just wanted to know what it was like, um, and. As it happens, if you can uh, say that you've got an economics credential from Oxford um, and you, you come with a posh enough voice, uh, you can blag your way into a place like that. So that's what I did uh, as an intern. Um, and I ended up doing some economic analysis for them around um, uh, environmentalism and trade. And, you know, the question they were asking was, does trade harm the environment? Um, and the easy answer is yes, because you, know, you have more stuff produced on either side of, of the trading relationship and that will damage the environment. The, the slightly more sophisticated answer is, well, no, because in the end, uh, you know, as people get richer, they have a preference for reducing pollution. And that uh, is, is how it is that the, the, we can uh, the trade it gets people further along this inevitable trajectory of not wanting pollution. And the third answer is, uh, uh, yes, that's true. But the way that people get rid of pollution is by exporting their pollution to a third country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, you can exercise your preference for uh, less pollution by just chucking it somewhere else. Um, and that's what trade lets you do. And so I, I, I explored that. And, and what was interesting to me w- was to see, first of all, that, that there wasn't necessarily anyone at the World Trade Organization who was uh, an evil genius in a black swivel chair sort of stroking a cat. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't you know that sort of Donald Pleasant's moment of, yes, we would, we would destroy this economy by making them polluted. Um, but instead, uh, it, it was a, a far more quotidian, more, more banal um, approach of, well, yeah, you know, w- when, when someone from Friends of the Earth comes in with an economic analysis, that, that goes straight in the, into the bin. Whereas when someone from Motorola comes in, it becomes policy. Mm-hmm. And seeing that at work at close quarters was very, it, it was important to me to, to understand what it was that 
good people were doing. Mm. Um, and at the World Bank, I was given the opportunity uh, by my supervisor at, at, at Cornell University to, to see um, the World Bank's gray literature and classified literature on poverty and to analyze it and show how it is that the World Bank, uh, you know, what the World Bank thought in its most unguarded moments about poverty. And I, I was absolutely down with that program. But that was a very interesting experience for me because I, I found myself being brought closer and closer to the very organization and the politics that I, I didn't uh, particularly care for. And so you know, I, I even once drunkenly at a party uh, mounted a, a sort of half-assed defense of the World Bank saying, well, you know, if, if the World Bank doesn't give these development funds, who's going to do it? Um, which is precisely the opposite of what I had believed, you know, a couple of months prior. Uh, what had happened? Did you? Well, I mean, I, I found myself caught in a position where I, I was in this job. I needed to get the job done. I needed to get it as uh, done as well as I could, given the constraints of the organization. And so even though I'd seen the, you know, the most radical bits of what we'd found in the World Bank literature discarded and set aside, and uh, instead the blame being put on the police or on the state in one way or another, and never the, the finger of blame being pointed at the World Bank, I'd become complicit. Uh, and for me, it was um, a, uh, I mean, it was a very interesting process of recognizing that in myself. In the end, um, I quit uh, a week after my supervisor did, um, uh, yeah, under, under similarly intolerable circumstances for him. But uh, it was it was very interesting, and I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm still kind of writing that up under the title "Je m'accuse." Um, but uh, I, 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 you know, it, it's important I think to recognize how it is that. Um, these institutions can themselves produce certain kinds of people and certain kinds of politics that accompany them. Well, I mean, when you're part of an organisation and surrounded by people who are essentially good people, um, you know, mm. and you're working for a common cause, what that cause is sometimes gets lost. Right. And particularly when you go into the World Bank and you see these gorgeous pictures of these beautiful African girls smiling at you and the, the mission of the World Bank, our dream is to a world is a world without poverty. And you see that every day and you're told every day you are fighting poverty. It becomes much easier for you to say, well, you know, maybe peasants aren't really don't really belong in rural areas and we need to move them to urban areas and we'll call this land mobility and, you know, we'll, the land stays where it is but actually the, it's the people on it who need to move out of the way for the sake of efficiency so we can fight poverty. And all of a sudden you start saying the most absurd things um, which, you know, good data can can help undermine. Um, but the, the, the sort of creeping politics of... Uh, technocracy of, of a few experts deciding the fate of many and never really suffering the consequences when they screw up. Those kinds of politics are what the World Bank is built around. At around the time that you left, that sort of coincided in, in time, in history, uh, with a rise of um, anti-corporate, anti-big institution mm. protests, which right. you were part of. Looking at protest then, which was very much sort of on the streets mm. with placards and, and that kind of thing, how effective was that and what did it achieve? Well, so we managed to stop through the, the late 1990s and early 2000s a lot of trade agreements and investment agreements that um, you, that today Donald Trump would be railing against. Um, so, for example, the, the multilateral, multilateral agreement on investment was something mooted in the late 1990s. You haven't heard of it because it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because uh, there was quite a lot of a, you know, a groundswell against it and a lot of mobilizing and organizing. For me, street protests are also important because it's a chance to build coalition. Where do you think we are 
with activism and protest now? One of the ways that activism bubbled up for me was through the food movement. Mm. In the United States and in a number of places, the food movement became uh, not a Trojan horse, but a way of pulling together a lot of the criticisms that had been part of the, you know, the alter globalization movement in ways that were hearable, um, that, that were audible for a generation that had tuned out um, the, the sort of language of anti-capitalist struggle. And so, I mean, I think for a good decade, decade and a half, the food movement became a very important way of uh, spreading ideas about, well, all right, what would it be like if food were a right? What would it be like if um, we were to grow food in ways that didn't involve cruelty to animals? What would it be like if uh, we grew food in ways that uh, sequestered carbon? All of a sudden, you know, the, the, the didn't big... Didn't exploit women. Exactly. There we are. I mean, so, so the, the, uh, and the, the ideas that you could engage in debates around the food system and then take on patriarchy and racism and, and capitalism, but without naming it explicitly, at least not, you know, not at first. Um, I, I think was a, was a very useful way in which some of this activism was sort of sublimated into, into other forms. And food is such a universally required thing. I mm. mean, it is the universally required thing, really. So, so everybody has some kind of personal buy-in to a food movement, in a sense. Mm -hmm. Did you have a relationship with food that sort of pre-existed this? What is your non-political relationship with food, if that can even be a thing? Um, it, well, I mean, my initial relationship with food was entirely dysfunctional. I mean, getting back to the convenience store, uh, it, you know, I, I was I was allowed free range of everything that was downstairs in the stockroom. So I grew up um, on the trajectory that my my parents have, have since ended up on of, you know, high blood sugar and, uh, uh, you know, uh, fatty foods and you know and, and sort of uh, too much salt and sugar and and, uh, and and what have you. It does sound like a total childhood fantasy. It, you know, I was a, a, a kid in a convenience. I mean, a kid <laughs> in a candy store. So you know, it, it's. Um, but it was actually through the protests and through meeting social movements that my relationship to food became political, um, and particularly through the, the, the protests of the World Trade Organization, but also afterwards um, through uh, engaging with um, groups like La Via Campesina, this international peasant movement that now has 200 million members around the world. Um, I was able to sort of understand much better how it is that, that food might look. And it turns out I quite like pleasure. I, I, hadn't, um, I hadn't really uh, appreciated this about myself, that, that um, really good food is something that I thought was for wankers. Um, and it turns out that you can have really good food and not spend a, a crap ton of money on it, but it be prepared in ways that, that are entirely joyous and joyful. And that was something that was a bit of a revelation, um, that uh, it was possible to be able to you know, convene and come together and, and think seditious thoughts while enjoying yourself. Because you know, in, in Britain, in Britain uh, you know, the sort of left of the 1980s and 90s was, if you're having fun, you're doing it wrong. That's right. Um, and The kind of application of a Protestant work ethic yeah, no, to, the, it. yeah, it, to the protest. You know, I, and also you know, the translation of a certain sort of Soviet aesthetic to right. the, you know, the rest of the planet, where it's like, well, you know, it's borscht for everyone. Um, and uh, to have groups like the Italian sort of communist and anarchists and slow food, for example, um, lead the way by saying, well, actually, you know, we're working to democratize pleasure. 
that seemed to me something I could get on board with. Yes. I like that in your writing, that insistence that um, that the protest can be inherently pleasurable and, mm. and, and in fact can enable pleasure for a lot of people, you know, that access to food and access to these kinds of things is is not just a right. It can be bloody lovely as well. And, and I think that that's, uh, I mean, that, that, that's the other thing that I'm, I'm sort of exploring now just to get back to the, the, the Spinoza idea is um, if Spinoza's right and we're all connected to everything in every, in every possible way... Um, why uh, 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 our sensual lives are really very attenuated. Um, you know, we're told that we have the five senses, that, uh, but it turns out that the, the proper number is about 17 for every individual, you know, a sense of itching, a sense of heat, a sense of um, uh, of, of dizziness, whatever it is. Um, but those aren't the only senses we have. I mean, most of our, our lives are built developing social senses, um, whether it's, you know, a, a sense of fun, a sense of gambling, a sense of uh, danger, whatever it is. Uh, these ideas are social senses that um, we can use to connect to the rest of the world. And I, I think part of me if wants to, I mean, certainly my, my, my project at the moment is, is just sort of to think about, well, what, what's that like? What, what is it to, to be connected to the world in different ways? And food is a really great way of, of reestablishing a connection that's been denied to so many of us for so long uh, that it's, uh, I, 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 I'm not only insisting on that connection, but I'm sort of doubling down on it right now. Mm, mm, mm. So at the end of this period, your, your career had been going extremely well, um, but then at some point uh, you were declared the Messiah. <laughs> That must have come out of left field. Yes, uh, it was. Um, it, it was odd. I mean, I, I was on book tour um, with a book called "The Value of Nothing," and uh, it had turned out, unbeknownst to me, the day before, or, or a few days before, I was I was going to to be on the Colbert Report, which is a big TV show in, in the US. Um, that uh, there had been a prophecy made of a man born in 1972. Excuse me. Came to London in 1975 from India, and who uh, was, uh, you know, who worked in the East End of London, and uh, was interested in poverty and sharing, and um, who carried a water bottle with him and stuttered. And all of these things can be said to be true of me. And so when I appeared on 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 telly, it turns out that that fulfilled the prophecy, and all of a sudden I was declared the the, the Buddha Maitreya. Because a, a sort of little-known Scottish mystic called Benjamin Cream had had decided that um, that this messiah was going to appear on an international television program at some point on the precise date that you were on Colbert. Right. I mean, that is quite a set of circumstances. It's it's odd. I'm I'm not going <laughs> to I'm not going to say it isn't. Um, but uh, you know, the 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 irony is that I'm the person who is least interested in being the messiah because. All the work that I've been doing, you know, we've been talking about this intellectual history about how it is that actually uh, my theory of change is about individuals seizing, uh, collectively seizing power and transforming their own worlds rather than waiting for some bloke to come along and do right. it for them. You've actually written, I don't think a messiah figure is going to be a terribly good launching point for the kind of politics I'm talking about. For someone who has very strong anarchist sympathies, this has some fairly deep contradictions in it. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and, but of course, uh, you know, I, I, I tried saying that half a dozen different ways, including I'm not the Messiah, I'm a very naughty boy. Um, you know, because it, it, it's like being inside a life of Brian. Um, and just like in Life of Brian, uh, when Brian says he's not the Messiah, um, the, you know, every, everyone sort of just repeats in ad nauseum. And you know, part of this prophecy is that, of course, I will say I'm not the Messiah. That's what the Messiah is meant to do. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm stuck with it for, an, for now, at least. And what sort of impact did that have on your life? Because it was quite a dramatic impact. The thing they don't tell you when they tell you you're, you're the Messiah is that um, there'll be a small um, and uh, violent group of people who think that you're the Antichrist. Um, and so that meant, you know, getting off social media and certainly sort of severing connections with my family um, just for their safety uh, because people started writing about, oh, yes, no, well, you know, it, it, when when the unbelievers come and kill you, don't worry, we've got, we'll take care of your family, which is not the sort of thing you no, want to find in your inbox. No, your children uh, raised yeah. by unbelievers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, that meant that the kind of activism I ended up, ended up doing was much more sort of behind the scenes. And in any case, that's sort of where I want to end up. The the, the work that I've been doing has always been a, a work of amplification rather than, you know, I mean, I, I've, I do original research, but uh, most of the ideas that I'm writing about are ideas that have come to other activists long before they've come to me. Uh, and what I'm doing is putting them in conversation with one another. Uh, and ultimately, there's you know, my my job is to fade into the background so that um, the activists in you know sub-Saharan Africa and in Malawi or uh, in Oakland or in Detroit or wherever it is um, can take the space that, uh, that that currently I've I've been sort of fighting to hold um, because it's not it's not my job to be uh, a mouthpiece, but it's a, it's a job to be uh, you know in solidarity with and a co-conspirator with them. A lot of your work is underpinned by a implied belief that change is possible. Hmm. You know, a hope that people can actually bring about a better future. You've written, and I quote, we see the need to dream for more radical change than contemporary politics offers. Hmm. What is wrong with contemporary politics, do you think? What are its limitations and how can we change them or is that not the answer? Do we need revolution? The walls that are put up for participation in contemporary politics is one of the reasons why so many people have contempt for it. You know, if, if you look at who's trusted in society, politicians are sort of... Um, Pretty low on the yes, list. Yes. I'm, 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 the, the Australian uh, expression I was, I was taught once was lower than shark shit. I'm, I'm not sure whether that's <laughs> actually a, an Australian expression. I've never heard it. Um, but but uh, it's fair enough. When we are told that our, the limits of our participation are right to your elected representative or, you know, vote the buggers out. And if those are the two things that you can do, of course, you're going to be frustrated with not being able to be invited to dream what it is that you would like for yourself and your family and your future and your community. So uh, I, I do think that we need a break with this kind of politics um, or, you know, to, to put it another way, uh, what we're peddled is democracy. And I would like to see that. I, I quite like democracy. I just don't think we live in one. I don't think anyone does. Mm. Um, and that's because the last and most unimportant thing about democracy is the voting. I'm interested in that bit. Uh, and a lot of people are. When I look at the kinds of change I've seen and you know, I've been privileged to see where communities in northern Malawi, for example, end patriarchy and 
to, to, to be able to just to say that uh, and to be able to see it happen and to document it over the, the, the course of years. Um, that's a very radically different kind of thing than you can get at the ballot box. There's never the option to end patriarchy on a ballot. That's not how, that's not how ballots work. Um, ballots are there to, to constrain choices, to, to reduce them. Um, and it seems to me that politics should be about opening up those choices. So I like the idea of politics, but that means breaking with the past. And does that mean being revolutionary? Well, I, 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 it's a word that, that um, I've had to make my peace with. But if I'm insisting that actually the way that we distribute resources at the moment is unfair, um, and as I've been saying since I was five years old, um, and if I'm saying that uh, actually there's some deep injustices that need to be corrected uh, and we need to transform the way we consume and we can't go on you know, destroying the, the, the ecology on which we are, of which we are part in the way that we are at the moment. These are fairly radical statements. And does it take a revolution in thinking and acting in order to be able to, to reach those changes? I think it probably does. In your book, The History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, which you co-wrote, um, you use a phrase called the Capitalocene, mm -hmm. saying that, that we uh, are living not in the Anthropocene, as people like to say, but in, a, in an era that is defined by its adherence to capitalism. Mm. But you also say, and again, I'm quoting you, much of capitalism cannot be reduced to economics. Cultures, states and scientific complexes must work to keep humans obedient to norms of gender, race and class. We normally think about capitalism as being about the dollar value and as being mm. completely focused. But while acknowledging that, you also call for a recognition that the structures of capitalism infuse everything. How do you sort of resolve that it's all about the dollar but it's about everything else um, paradox? In order for markets to work, you need... Police forces. You need, you know, because I, I, I mean, I, I can't just go into a store and pick something up and say, well, I, th I think this is worth about a buck. That's what I'm leaving on the table. Bye bye. Um, because soon enough, there will be a, a, a representative of the state. Um, you know, usually uh, uh, someone from a police force will will set me set me straight. You know, we recognise that in order for markets to to, to be the rule, um, transgressing them needs to be policed and. Then, well, let's look at how it is that the work of producing things happens in a capitalist economy. Well, that means that someone goes out and someone stays at home and looks after the kids. And those norms, again, are uh, ones that you see replicated through structures of patriarchy in our society, for example. Um, and then you have, well, you know, th th this, this work is particularly egregious. And we, the original settlers of this land, couldn't see ourselves doing it. Why don't we find, find some other people to do it? And so all of a sudden, um, th there are ways in which people of colour and and, and women, again, are treated as second-class disposable workers. Uh, these are institutions where, in order for the dollar value to look the way that it does, um, you need these sort of chains of exploitation in order to make, you know, to, to be able to get to this dollar value. Do, dollars don't manufacture themselves. And so the sort of myth of the free market, of, you know, enlightened exchange happening between consenting parties. Um, again, I mean, I like the idea of people entering into free exchange. I, I, I think that's terrific. But that's the opposite of what capitalism is. Capitalism is about the enforcement of different logics of accumulation, uh, so that most people who, in, who enter into sort of capitalist relations do so unwillingly. It's said that capitalism relies on the human urge towards self-interest, you know, mm -hmm. the desire to better oneself, the desire to sort of constantly be generating profit, getting bigger. But I wonder sometimes if capitalist societies actually also depend in many ways on 
the altruism of people. Absolutely. Because if we were to live in a truly capitalist society, it would be a hideous shark tank in which everybody would rip each other apart. Right. Where do you think the role of altruism is? And do you think that that's, that that's true, that, 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 that if people weren't naturally in some way altruistic, then the capitalist system would actually end? Absolutely. I mean, it, how else can you explain um, why it is that when bodies are broken in the, you know, the in production systems, they, 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 those workers have families to go to who will take care of them. More importantly, uh, even though the myth of, uh, you know, the fact that we're all selfish and greedy bastards is, uh, you know, a, a popular myth, it's not true. Um, there's a there's a game called a reciprocity experiment where um, you know so, so someone will come into this room and and give you Edwina a, a dollar and and the, the game is you decide how much of that dollar to give to me and then I decide whether to accept that or no one gets anything those are the two options so how much would you give me oh you can have the dollar Ash oh that's that's very sweet of you and but then in some societies um, I would be like oh no I see what you're doing. <laughs> Because next, next time that you want me to do something, you'll be like, but I gave you that dollar that time. So no, you keep that dollar. I don't want to be obliged to you. In Western societies, usually people will someone say 50, 50. Well, maybe not. Uh, you know, Edwina, you keep 60 and I, I, I'd, get, I'd get 40 and I'd be like, all right, fine. You were lucky enough to be given the dollar first. Fine. Yeah, okay. it, it varies according to society. But it also within, um, you know, what passes for Western civilization, the, the people who are the most selfish and greedy are graduate students in economics. They're the ones who keep most of the money. They won't keep it all. They'll, they'll give something. Like every primate, they're not entirely engines of selfishness and greed. They are also uh, human beings who recognize that they have to have some sort of modicum of, of decency with respect to another human being. Why do you think capitalism is so persistent? Oh, because it has guns. But I think that the interesting question is not why capitalism is persistent despite having awesome and fearsome weaponry, but why it is that, that it, it hasn't succeeded. There are plenty of indigenous communities that are um, fighting back against capitalism still, 500 years on, 600 years on. Um, there are plenty of, of, uh, of communities within capitalism that reject it. Um, and so you've got to wonder, like, here's a, a system of organizing the world that has every, literally everything, uh, and it's still not able to... to to win, uh, and I think that's a sign both of its of its frailty, like, like every system. I mean, there's nothing total about capitalism, but it's also a, a sign of of hope for for those of us who, who think about well, what happens afterwards. So, how is a non-capitalist future achieved, and what comes next? Here, history doesn't give us much uh, to to hope for. I mean, capitalism emerges because feudalism fell apart in a maelstrom of climate change and epidemic disease. And what do we have now? Well, we've certainly got climate change. And we also have in concentrated animal feeding operations and, you know, these feedlots, uh, the perfect incubators for epidemic disease uh, around the world. So, I mean, if history is a guide, then capitalism ends in, in fire and disease. Um, and that's not a terribly optimistic, but looking at, at patterns of history, that may be what it is that we, we have to expect. Um, but that doesn't mean that we have to wait for that in order to, to imagine what it is that we want to happen next. And I think that these ideas of, well, all right, what does 
enterprise look like? What, what, what does entrepreneurship look like when it's not capitalist? Mm. What, um, what, what is it that uh, indigenous business, for example, um, might you know, might be? What, what, what is it? You know, how is it that we can share uh, and be connected to the planet in ways that are deeply respectful? I, I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of ideas coming from First Nations um, who are both decolonizing the food system and decolonizing medicine, a range of other things um, that uh, that are worth looking at. Are you ultimately hopeful for our future? Uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's it's the Gramsci line of pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. But you know, I, I can't I can't look at how powerful these corporations are and think that they're going to just roll over um, and and clear the way for you know, a just economic settlement and you know end patriarchy and all the rest of it. On the other hand, I can't look at the social movements that have won victories already and betray them by saying, "Well, is it, you know, you're, you're you're pissing about on the edges," because that's not true either. Um, so again, with open eyes of how difficult things are going to be and how difficult things are at the moment, um, I'm I'm hopeful about what it is that we can achieve. Well, Raj Patel, thank you very much for coming so in and much. having this talk today. Thank you. Raj Patel joined us for Antidote in 2018. Check our show notes for links to his writing, plus videos of his events at the festival. Next week's episode features another global changemaker, the environmentalist Mark Linus. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastered by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan, with research by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Fleur Mitchell and Nerida Ross. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>